Hello, and welcome to the Green Book Commentaries. I'm Dr. Arthur Plessa. Episode 20, Speransky's Theory of Medicine, Part 4. We begin our reading in Volume 25, page 172. There is absolutely no doubt that such facts are widely encountered in the human clinic. A disease gets its name not from the cause, but from one of the numerous consequences, and often enough from that one which in the whole course of the process is perhaps less culpable than the rest. It is well known that while recognizing meningitis to be an infectious disease, we have almost no grounds for regarding it as contagious. Rare cases of family meningitis are no evidence, since we find here that besides infection, a large number of other conditions also coincide. Contact with meningococcus is not sufficient by itself for the disease to develop. Some other process takes place in advance, preparing the situation in which the interaction of the microorganism and macroorganism will subsequently take place. Now, if that is the case, what practical use do we get from our knowledge of the meningococcus? Does it help us to explain anything? In having recourse to specific serum treatment of meningitis, we expect to do away with the microbe, but the latter itself appears only as the consequence of another cause. To abolish the microbe and to leave the conditions in force which made it pathogenic. Such a formulation can hardly satisfy anyone, the more so since the task of removing the microbe is far from simple to fulfill. Specific reactions merely deprive the microbe of its capacity of being an irritating agent. They neutralize the microbe, converting it into a saprosphite. They, might, they by no means always destroy it physically. <clears throat> it is precisely this that has given rise to the fear of bacteria carriers and the constant precautions for sterilization in the case of patients recovering from scarlatina, diphtheria, typhus, etc. Almost 30 years have passed since the first proposals for serum treatment of meningitis Coley and Wasserman. The period has been sufficient both for perfecting the original preparation and for clearing up the question of its actual value. In point of fact, however, even now we have not gone outside this sphere of primitive experiment. Every year we try new sera, prepared by means of new, merely accidental, antigens. And every year, after a short period of rapture, we have to regret the shattering of our illusions. At times, the desire to obtain at all costs a specific effect from the use of serum in meningitis puts physicians in a definitely false position. For instance, I know of cases where children three to six years old have been given as many as five to nine injections of serum during four to eight weeks. During this period, some of the patients receiving injections amounting to 600 to 900 cc of serum. Their recovery was accounted a triumph of specific therapy, in spite of the fact that the favorable turning point in the process began after the sixth or ninth injection. It may be asked, why were the first injections a failure? Why did the nth portion of serum preparation, which up until then had been indifferent, suddenly acquire properties of specific action, both on the disease and on the microbe? Doubts of this sort are apparently finding their way also into the clinic. At any rate, the behavior of medical practitioners is sufficiently clear evidence of such doubts. Without renouncing serum and alongside of it, the clinic makes the most energetic use of all other forms of therapeutic operations in treating meningitis.
it is practically impossible to find clear cases among its material. In spite of this, in its general conclusions, the clinic is bound by tradition. If the favorable turning point of the disease coincides in time with one of the numerous injections of serum, then the effect is ascribed precisely to the latter and accounted specific. Hope springs up anew. Work is concentrated on the search for the necessary microbe and the most subtle differentiation of its properties. New sera are prepared and new series of clinical tests are performed. The laboratory supports the clinic with all its force. By means of controlled experiments, it proves that on mixing virulent meningococcus with various doses of specific specific serum, it is not able to produce meningitis in rabbits on suboccipital or intracerebral inoculation. Such, for instance, were the recent experiments of Professor P.F. Zadrodovsky and his collaborators. These experiments are undoubtedly interesting, but they only prove that it is possible to produce meningitis in the rabbit by immediate injection of the virus into the region of the central nervous system, and that in such cases, even minimal quantities of anti-meningococcus serum actually have a specific effect. These facts, however, only make it more incomprehensible why the same serum, employed in enormous doses, proves to be useful in spontaneous meningitis of human beings, in spite of the fact that it's injected directly into the region affected. The fact that it is possible to produce meningitis in rabbits in the experiment with the intracerebral injection of meningococcus has no precise significance. When the kidney lies in the path of development of the dystrophic process evoked by irritating the nerve apparatus of the ovary or testicle, it is the first organ to be affected by tuberculosis. If the same process arises in another place, it remains healthy to the end. The nervous system in itself is both center and periphery. Biochemical processes taking place in it are subject to the same nerve regulation as in the liver, heart, skeletal muscles, etc. The creation of temporary or permanent pathological nerve combinations results in the development of pathological processes in various organs, including those in the nervous system itself. The most we can expect here is the elimination of the additional irritation by the removal of the microbe, but it is precisely this that immunity does not guarantee. The microbe perishes in the normal tissues, even in the immediate vicinity of the pathologically altered parts where it is able to maintain itself. As long as this vicinity re retains its normal biochemical and hence functional state if the first changes, which were the cause of the tissue dystrophy, prove to be temporary and gradually pass away, then the tissue alterations also disappear, and the microbe disappears along with them. No special form of immunity is required for this. We know very well that appropriately, appro appropriately prepared serum cannot help having specific properties. In cases where it does not produce any effect in the organism, is this not a proof that the reactions mentioned do not play any part in the given process? It is difficult to renounce habitual and reestablished views and especially to make up one's mind to choose a new line of behavior. But this choice has already been made unconsciously. The preparation of sera against diphtheria and tetanus is a task undertaken by every institute working in the sphere of immunology. The preparation of other sera proceeds without any plan, according to the inclinations of the individual workers, accidentally acquiring or losing interest in a particular question. 
The time has come to make a re-evaluation of the whole situation from the very beginning. What we have observed makes doubt legitimate, and we venture to deny that recovery from cerebrospinal meningitis is the result of immunobiological reactions. Even when anti-meningococcus serum gives an apparently clear therapeutic effect, the latter may depend not on the specific properties of the serum, but on the additional irritation, which proves useful in the given case by causing the necessary transformation of the state of the organism. The fact that cerebrospinal meningitis often occurs epidemically cannot alter the matter. Acquaintance with the microbe, the undoubted initiator of many forms of individual and mass diseases, was a great advance in the investigation of the pathology of infection. Herein consists the magnificent service rendered by Pasteur. But at the same time, it has artificially simplified reality, making it possible to unite processes between which there is only an external resemblance on the straight, on the strength of a single and often accidental characteristic. We know from the data of epidemiology of cholera that it is preceded, accompanied, and followed by so-called cholera-like diseases. Externally, there is no way different. Externally, these are in no way different from cholera, diarrhea, vomiting, convulsions coldness of the extremities, lowered pulse, etc. But the cholera microbe cannot be discovered in the patient's organism. Consequently, the external form of the disease here is not necessarily connected with the cholera vibrio. If, during periods of cholera epidemics, the whole complex of cholera symptoms is exhibited without participation of the corresponding microbe, it means that numbers of persons, usually living in one locality and often in similar social circumstances, are subjected simultaneously to the influence of similar but unusual irritations, creating a definite form of predisposition in the organism. The additional irritation, in our terminology the second blow, transforms the hidden state of predisposition into a clearly revealed process. The activity of the microbe in this case becomes merely the activity of a catalyzing agent. Can the cholera microbe produce the typical syndrome of the disease in the healthy organism? I am of course speaking here of human beings, as in the vibrio, is in general not pathogenic for the majority of animals. Curiously enough, it is difficult to settle this question. Cases of laboratory infection do not give a definite answer. Since, firstly, there are very few such cases, and secondly, the results obtained are contradictory. Best known is the experiment made in I.I. Mechnikov's laboratory. Several of his collaborators administered to themselves per os a definite quantity of pure culture of cholera vibrio. One of them quickly became ill with symptoms of acute gastroenteritis. The rest remained healthy. Thus, we have no data for deciding in what precise way the microbe acted here, whether it was the actual initiator of the process or only facilitated its more rapid appearance. It does not follow from this that the cholera vibrio is in general innocuous and that the danger of its presence, for instance, in water reservoirs is exaggerated, since both its properties as a catalyzing agent and its capacity to add something that aggravates the basic process are reflected in the statistics of cholera sickness and mortality. But in pathology, an example, and the theory of the origin and formation of diseases, it is necessary to dethrone it, or more correctly, to assess it at its real value. Otherwise, we shall not find our way out of the mental blind alley 
into which the pathology has been driven by the accumulation of contradictions. Cases of family grip are easily explained by the uniformity of constitution and similarity of conditions of life and environment. Finally, the epidemiology of grip includes forms of its spreading which are incompatible with the idea of infection. Thus, in one year, grip starting from Berlin moves to Moscow. The theory of infection does not answer these questions. Consequently, the solution must be sought in other spheres. The old Russian term, pevetry, has been replaced by the term epidemic. Nevertheless, the old term still contains a particle of truth. Our experiments show that bacterial, chemical, and physical agents were alike capable of beginning dystrophic processes within the network of the nervous system. In their further course, these processes did not remain indefinite, but on the contrary, easily took on particular qualitative forms. In the huge complex of influences comprised in the words, in the words climate, season, meteorological conditions, etc. The analysis of the significance of these separate parts and their combinations is far from complete. It is more than probable that many of them do not act, as is usually supposed, in a general way, undermining the resistance of the organism, but in a particular way producing a definite form of transformation in the nervous system of the animals of the same species. Returning to the basic subject of our exposition, I raise the question, does all this imply that cerebrospinal meningitis, cholera, and certain other epidemic diseases do not belong to the category of specific processes? No, it does not. These diseases are undoubtedly specific, but specificity must, as was mentioned more than once, be assessed by quite other means than were previously used. The infectional process obtains its definite form and cyclical course as a result of the constancy of the nerve mechanism underlying it. The microbe discovered in the foci of the affected parts can participate in three aspects. Either it is the producing agent, an example, the actual initiator of the process, as in plague, glanders, anthrax, etc. Or it acts as a specific catalyzing agent. An example, it facilitates the occurrence of a process already prepared beforehand by the action of other agents. Or finally, it merely makes its appearance in the tissues the biological condition of which has been altered in a direction that is favorable precisely for this microbe and no other. In the last case, it is only an in indicator of the process already present. In gradually rendering the spirochete harmless, it de in depriving it of its property as an irritant, the organism does not kill it. It lives on peaceful terms with it, as it lives with the bacilli of tuberculosis and many other pathogenic and non-pathogenic microbes. As a result, we have spirochetosis, but from spirochetosis to syphilis is still a long way. The second process, the beginning of which coincides with that of the first, is the irritation of the nerve elements in the tissues at the place of infection. To obtain sclerosis in rabbits, it is essential to make the inoculation in the skin tissue. The significance of the circumstance has already been repeatedly emphasized by me in, in, in analyzing the genesis of a number of other processes. It is precisely here in the region of the peripheral nerve apparatus that the process which subsequently gets the name of syphilis has its inception. At this point, the spirochete irritates the organism not merely as an antigen. The reaction which it evokes has nothing to do with immunity reactions. By entering into intimate association with the nerve apparatus,
it becomes a specific nerve irritant. It operates the starting lever of the fatal mechanism already known to us. Once this mechanism is started, it continues like clockwork and the process develops step by step, gradually involving the whole organism. If, at the moment of infection, the spirochete penetrates only into the circulatory system, while the nerve apparatus at the periphery for some reason remains untouched, syphilis will not develop. The matter will not go beyond spirochetosis, and we obtain a nuller. The irritation caused by the spirochete at any point of the nerve network does not die out but passes into the characteristic form of a remittent process. Thus, when sclerosis has appeared, it rapidly attains a definite, or more correctly, marginal size, beyond which it does not spread, and after persisting for a short, peer, short time, it vanishes, quite apart from whether treatment is applied or not. A pause then ensues, followed by a roseolus rash, then again a pause, and so on, through a new series of new local foci and new pauses. The result is a definite cycle of periods of affection and free intervals. This alone ought to turn attention to the direction of the nervous system, for which a rhythmic form of activity is characteristic. But we have already more than once seen that when the remote consequences of certain forms of nerve trauma are taken into consideration, the weakness of the irritating agent proves to be the source of its strength. The terrible devastation which is, some, which is sometimes wrought in the organism by syphilis during the later stages is connected precisely with this fact. To cure syphilis means to arrest the progress of the neurodystrophic process within the nervous system. Then the spirochete will disappear of itself. Just as it disappears from the sclerosis without any treatment during the regressive development of the latter, as a result of changes in the state of the tissues in this region. In the human clinic, therefore, the tuberculosis bacilli are only very rarely the initiators of the disease. In cases of spontaneous tuber tuberculosis, it is futile to increase immunity by the introduction of live or dead virus of specific antibodies. In our experiments on the infection of various places of the gastrointestinal canal of rabbits with tuberculosis, we saw that in one and the same animal, in one and the same system of organs, the microbes behave differently at two almost neighboring places. In one place, they produce generalization of the process beyond the limits of the injection. In the other, they perish sometimes so rapidly that it is not even possible to discover the spot. No attributes of the microbe, neither its resistance to acids nor its waxy coverings, save it from annihilation. It is clear that the role of the waxy covering of the tuberculosis bacillus as an absolute factor in its resistive capacity is a ligand which is it which it is time to cast into oblivion. Artificial immunization can only safeguard against active tuberculosis and does not save from passive tuberculosis, where the microbe only initiates another process. The danger of tuberculosis is the danger of these forms of dystrophy with which the microbe becomes associated secondarily. Everything that is capable of intensifying the dystrophy increases both the volume and the extent of tuberculosis, even if the same means raises specific immunity to the highest level. In the case of syphilis, we saw that the antigenic properties of the sp spirochete and its capacity of being a nerve irritant are connected. On the attainment of immunity, a new inoculation of virus does not produce any visible reactions. This does not happen in tuberculosis. Immunity does not deprive the antigen of its property of being a nerve irritant, and tuber 
tuberculin may easily intensify the already existing dystrophic process. Instead of the old foci being eliminated, new ones are formed, for the existence of immunity does not affect the capacity of the microbe to live in the tissues of the immune animal. At the present time, the clinic has witnessed so many failures of the application of specific therapy in detuberculosis that it has been almost entirely given up. Only in eye practice is tuberculin still sometimes employed as a means of treatment. But if tuberculin is useful only in the case of tuberculosis of the eye, then the solution of this riddle must be sought not in tuberculosis, but in the eye. Up to the present day, this could not be done, for the term specificity has been understood as indicating a regularity of a very limited order, as a phenomenon, sui generis, signalizing, as it were, the impossibility of further analysis. To call a process specific has meant, in essence, only to register it. This procedure is admissible in regard to biological processes, since we judge of the specific qualities of an agent by the reactions of the substratum on which it acts. An example, by the reactions of a complicated system of exactly regulated parts. Either we must give up recognizing the history of development altogether, or, if we take it into account, we must draw the appropriate conclusions. How is it possible to assume that living protoplasm has retained its capacity for progressive development in spite of its infinite diversity of forms of resistance to which it has been subjected in the course of millions of years finally giving rise to man, and that it has nevertheless remained dependent on innumerable specific agents ready at every given moment to cause it to exhibit a fresh, some sort of unprecedented properties. Invading this system from outside, the foreign agent evokes a reaction in elements, which are not independent at any moment of their existence. Each forms part of manifold and definite working units, and the latter in their turn are linked with one another by a system of connections. Physiological stimuli bring definite mechanisms into action for a definite period. Subsequently, the process dies away or is automatically transferred to another region. For the order in which new links of the whole system are included is already predetermined in the function itself. How otherwise could a complex organism arise? We find closely similar regulations in pathology. The difference consists in the unusual character of the irritation of the points at which it arises. It is natural that under these conditions, the functioning of physiological mechanisms will undergo pronounced alteration, but by no means in an anarchic, anarchic fashion. The process has its own order, its own plan, and, as we have repeatedly seen, this plan is consistent and strictly defined. Between its inception and its complete dying out, the process passes successively through several stages. The symptoms appear in a definite cycle, allowing the registration of separate diseases and their systematization. However, the individuality or specificity of the process is not absolute. We are aware how long a time elapsed before the old concept of fever was differentiated into various forms of typhus, abdominal, exanthematic, and remittent, how difficult it is now to diagnose certain pathological forms, and on what minute details a correct decision rests. The same applies to the separate symptoms. Let us take the rash of measles and sclerotina. These could be accounted strictly specific reactions, were it not for cases of so-called idiosyncrasy, where the same irritating agent produces in different subjects different kinds of rashes. In one case, the sclerotina type. In the other, that of measles. Every day, the clinic encounters such facts in various spheres of its work. Hence, 
there are no genuine specific reactions connected with only one specific irritating agent. They all belong to the category of group reactions. Only the number of producing agents in each group is different. Our task was to elucidate the basic mechanisms common to all diseases, and the reader has seen that the results of each of our experiments invariably turned our attention to the nervous system. The same happened in regard to the question of specific reactions. The quality of the irritating agent proved to be its capacity to evoke in the nervous system the clinical development of a definite process, the basic laws of which are closely akin to the laws of the phenomena united in this book under the name of neurodystrophic processes. A specific irritating agent does not evoke only one form of reaction within a network of the nervous system. Ordinary nerve trauma is always added to the special irritation. The special form of the dystrophic process is accompanied by the standard form and can be and can even be entirely obscured by the latter. Or on the other hand, the standard form may begin to appear a long time after the special one has been eliminated. Herein lies the danger of those specific methods of treatment which are commonly used in clinical practice. More than once, isolated voices of physicians have been raised in warning against the seduction of inoculations and of so-called diagnostic tests. The reactions of Pirquet, Chic, Dick, etc., which are widely used in schools and children's clinics. Such voices have not been heeded as they should not as they should have been, since they only pointed out isolated facts and could not explain them. Indeed, they met with numerous objections on the part of those who held the view that akin inoculation tests are harmless on the ground that in the vast majority of cases such operations are not followed by any immediate harm. We see now that these arguments are inadequate. It is only possible to speak of the harmlessness of specific reactions in cases where the producing agent actually possesses only specific properties, but such cases are practically impossible. The other process develops slowly and creeps in unnoticed. Its consequences belong to another category with the primary specific agent. The facts adduced in this book settle this definitely, and to shrink from the solution of the problem thus raised would be consciously, and perhaps criminally, too close one's eyes to reality, to close one's eyes to reality. The process may break out after many weeks or months and be manifested in an unexpected form, being nevertheless casually connected with an operation about which both doctor and patient have ceased to think. Of course, the consequences mentioned are neither inevitable nor necessarily ruinous. The danger in this respect should not be exaggerated, but it must also not be underestimated, especially in cases where the trauma is inflicted more than once on young animals. A characteristic feature of neurodystrophic processes is their capacity to leave behind in the network of the nervous system hidden traces which subsequently become sources of additional pathological stimuli, giving rise to new pathological foci. It is precisely by this means that the process spreads through all parts of the network. The repetition of an irritation from outside not only gives rise to a new process, but may also cause the revival of an old one, which that which that was to all appearance wholly extinguished. Such is the basis of our experiments with a second blow, which served as it as material for our concept of predisposition, a concept which the physicians have never attempted to explain, and which previously was given the name of locus minoris residentiae. Our subsequent study of neurodystrophic processes showed that the question of the strength and weakness of the irritating agent is not so simple as it was believed to be.
and that it depends on the combination of many conditions. Since an irritating agent may be weak with one state of the nervous system and strong with another. Finally, it was established that in a number of cases, we can speak of the strength or weakness of an irritating agent only in relation to reactions following shortly after the irritation. Whereas in estimating the results right to the end, including the remote consequences, the, consequ the concepts of strength or weakness may change places. The appearance of new foci of irritation transforms the network of the nervous system. From this point of view, there is no difference between the immortality of the amoeba and the mortality of the higher animals. In principle, both the one and the other are immortal, but advancing along the scale of perfection, the higher animals lose the possibility of making use of this property, since under complicated conditions of life, there is no environment which would guarantee them from the accident of an unusual irritation. It is sufficient that this should happen only once. The system of cumulative relations itself will do the rest. As a result, the least scratch or prick is capable of being a stimulus for senescence. The effect is enhanced if the scratch is accompanied by chemical irritation, especially in the form of a protein nature, which has the property of evoking special forms of irritation. Consequently, the clinic, and especially the children's clinic, should accurately estimate the real need for skin tests and all sorts of inoculations, and become quite clear as to the reality of their harmlessnesses. Otherwise, the so-called achievements of science may easily be converted into one of the methods of crippling humanity. This question becomes especially acute owing to the fact that the existing method of active immunization of human beings are not unanimously accepted. In this field, we have more hopes than achievements. Even the interpretation itself of the results of mass inoculations is strangely contradictory and ambiguous. One frequently reads or hears that even if active immunization does not lower the percentage of cases of disease among those inoculated, still it alleviates the form and course of the process. Supposing this to be true, where does specific immunity come in? The form of the given pathological process may be light or severe, but once it has begun, this means there is no immunity. Two years ago, one of my friends, Professor B, developed abdominal typhus in the classical form which is not comparatively rarely met with. From the third week onwards, the bladder had to be emptied daily by a catheter, even when the temperature had returned to normal and other symptoms had disappeared, this operation had to be continued. As a result, the patient developed a slight cystitis, following, that, following which the typhus syndrome, syndrome reappeared in the previous classical form, and again lasted exactly three weeks. The disease repro reproduced in the most precise fashion the whole course of the process that had only just come to an end. I shall refrain from any categorical judgment as to the cause of the above described relapse, but I cannot avoid the suspicion that it was caused by the second blow to the nervous system, in which the process taking place had not yet been fully extinguished. Careful study of analogous cases, which are not rare in the typhus clinic, would of course make it possible to obtain a more exact idea in regard to this subject. At the present moment, however, we are interested in a different matter. If, even in the exceptional conditions of immunization created by overcoming the disease, there is no guarantee against immediate heavy relapses then it is clear that the severity of the process is not connected with so-called immunity reactions 
and that the effect of inoculation mentioned above does not depend on specific antibodies alone. The repeated action of the specific agent is small doses, trains the nervous system in increasing its resistance to the given form of irritation and perhaps also to a number of other irritations of a similar kind. But where does disease come in here? What we have been speaking of is a normal or physiological function directed towards active maintenance of the equilibrium between the organism and its environment. Finally, the third fact was established during the study of specific reactions, a number of features compelling us to include them in a special group of processes allied in type to nervous dystrophy. Hence, we have come to regard incubation as the same time during which the irritation arising from one or several nerve points draws other parts of the nervous system into the process and brings about temporary or permanent functional changes in them. If that is the case, then not only the initial but also the second and third symptoms of the disease have their incubational period. Incubation lasts from the moment of irritation until death or recovery. The disease itself is considerably shorter since we are accustomed to measure it only from the time when external symptoms are found. Leaving out of account certain attempts, including the old investigations of Samuel and the recent work of Ricker, it can be said that no real appraisal of the nervous factor has ever been made from the point of view of general pathology. At the beginning of our work also had a sporadic character, passing from one subject to another, according to the logic of the experiment itself. Consequently, when the need for systematizing the materials became clearly defined, we discovered also the inadequacy, or more correctly, the simple absence of the necessary basic principles. In setting to work, we, like everyone else regarding neurotrophic disturbances, as a special form of reaction of the organism, forming the subject matter of a special chapter of pathology. The further our analysis of the subject advanced, the more necessary it became to enlarge the circle of phenomena, where the nervous component is the fundamental part of the process determining the outcome of the disease of the fate of the animal. I am not speaking here of the various forms of vascular derangements, the nervous nature of which is sufficiently clear at the present time. Our work has shown that various destructive changes, acute and chronic inflammation, neoplasms, and even trauma, are closely connected with processes of a nervous character. At the present moment, we are in a position to assert that neurodystrophic processes are not confined to a limited sphere, that they enter into the composition of all pathological processes without exception, are not separable from them, and consequently do not constitute and cannot constitute a separate chapter in pathology. In order to make clear the position adopted by us, it is necessary to turn to the history of the subject. The time is still quite recent when the existence of a trophic function of the nervous system was only a matter for debate. The controversy arose in the middle of the 19th century and has persisted to our day. All will remember it. There is now no necessity to resuscitate its whole history since the embittered disputes have gradually died down and we have at last the right to speak of the trophic role of the nervous system without fear, without fearing to encounter objections at every step. Contemporary physiology studies fragments of processes under suitable and artificially created conditions, whereas medicine is occupied with life in the totality of its simple and complex manifestations, including all those exceptional combinations which only nature show, knows how to produce. Contemporary physiology is still practically an analytical science. 
medicine has at all times been interested only in synthesis. Defending its right day by day to pursue its propositions to the end and to use them for practical purposes. This is the basic and inevitable feature of medicine. For medicine cannot be guided merely by the approbation of laboratory research, and it often maintains an independent attitude. Such a rupture took place between the laboratory and the clinic in regard to the question of neurotrophic processes, and the clinic has continued to collect and systematize the relevant material in its own way. An important part was played here by the experience of the World War, 1914 to 1918. It became evident that the consequences of nerve traumata are by no means restricted merely to anesthesia, pain, paralysis, or vasomotor disturbances. A lively interest was once again awakened in neurotrophic phenomena. This attracted the attention of research laboratories, and proofs were at last obtained capable of convincing the old physiology of the existence of the direct influence of the nervous system on biochemical processes in the tissues. These proofs were reinforced by the study of the nerve aspect of the so-called vegetative process. The foundations for this were laid even before the World War, but it reached its full development only during recent years. It should be noted, by the way, that the proofs now discovered by physiology were necessary for physiology itself. At about the same time, the classical experiment of Claude Bernard with sugar puncture became widely known. The phenomenon observed by him has up to the present time not received a final appraisal, although it has been the subject of ardent research for 60 years. But there is no doubt that the question of the active participation of the nervous system in the process of metabolic regulation was thereby definitely raised. In 1884, the desertion of V.I. Razumovsky appeared, dealing with atrophic processes in bones after severance of the nerves. The sympathetic nervous system was found to be included in the central nervous system and fused with it morphologically and functionally to such an extent that it became simply impossible to speak of impossible to speak of any exact boundaries between them. In the last resort, this made it necessary to separate under the same name of the vegetative nervous system, a special functional group consisting of central portions, the sympathetic chain, and the nerve structures with the organs at the periphery. Many of these works provide ground for thinking that the nervous system has a really direct influence on the course of physico-chemical processes in the organism. The facts obtained are not only evidence of the existence of the neurohumoral regulation of physiological processes, they once more confirm the thesis that the nervous system has a really direct influence on the chemical processes in the tissues. Since then, and especially in recent years, a large number of works have appeared dealing with the participation of the nervous system in tissue metabolism. These works relate to various branches of physiology, pathology, and medical practice. At the present stage of science, the basic tasks are 1. To establish the forms of this participation. 2. To obtain a concrete conception of the work of the corresponding nervous mechanisms. 3. To determine the laws of a general and special character applying to the process of this nature. How is it possible to understand that under the influence of a nerve stimulus, a gland cell passes from a state of rest into one of secretion? If this act is not looked upon as direct nerve influence on tissue metabolism, the nerve is secretory only because it is trophic. The one cannot exist without the other. If we deny this, what suffers is by no means the conception of trophic nerves but that of secretory nerves, 
motor, receptor, and secretory nerve functions were noted as functions sui generis and recognized without any struggle, although the essence of the phenomena taking place here still remains unknown. The theory of trophic nerve functions arised a storm of opposition, although we cannot conceive of any biological processes without changes in matter. The cause of the struggle that arose did not lie, therefore in facts of direct contradictions. The basic cause lay in the question being raised from the very beginning as a question of special and completely new nervous function, distinct from those previously known. In a complex organism, the nervous component enters into the com composition of every process without exception. The concept of an organ, of its structure and function, takes this into account since an attempt to change the nerve conditions of an organ may easily lead to the loss of the organ itself. As long as a given tissue is in a normal condition, the neurotrophic processes in it remain invisible precisely because they determine the state of normality. Any change beyond the usual limits is a signal of the transition to pathology. This is why pathology and the clinic are so far ahead of physiology in this question. Physiology, claiming to study the normal state, for a long time had no suitable means of approach to the phenomena mentioned. The inertia resulting from what had been useful in the past prevented a review of the basic prepositions of physiology itself, and instead of revising its own methods, the failure was ascribed to the subject under investigation. Hence, the question of the direct influence of the nervous system on the course of physico-chemical processes in the organism was even at that time decided positively, not merely for tissues, the functional state of which was easily distinguishable from the state of rest, glands, but also for others where this difference is not pronounced. These include fasciae, tendons, bones, etc. The peculiar forms of affection of the bones in tabes dorsalis, severe local destruction of various tissues in syringomyelia, and further, such diseases as myositis ossificans, where bone develops in the place of muscle tissue, left no doubt of their nervous nature. They could not be explained either by simple atrophy from disuse or by vascular derangements. On looking for the cause of the demand that the phenomena of neurotrophism should be demonstrated in resting tissue, one sees that it is also based on the question of an indicator. Facts which are convincing within the bounds of one science are not considered as proofs by another. Hence, the origin of disagreements and an atmosphere of distrust and uneasiness.